Now please open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. So Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. I'll specifically be preaching through verses 6 and 7, but we'll look at, I'll read all of verses 1 to 7, just as I did last Sunday. Today's the third Sunday of Advent, the third sermon in our Advent sermon series, looking at some of the significant and stunningly clear uh, prophetic promises in the Old Testament book of Isaiah about the coming Savior, prophecies and promises which Isaiah made over 700 years before Jesus, the divine, eternal Son of God, took on flesh, entered our world as a baby, dwelt among us, all to live, die, and rise from the grave as our Lord and Savior. But who, who is this Son of God? Well, Isaiah tells us. Isaiah describes for us the, the person and work of the coming Savior. And as one old Presbyterian pastor put it, this was James Montgomery Boyce, he said that Isaiah 9, in particular verses 6 and 7, is, is much like a birth announcement. And I, and I think he's on to something. It is like a birth announcement. But think about the birth announcements that, that you've sent out or that you received in the mail. You know, they often, I mean, they're all fairly similar. They they include the, the, the name of the baby, the, the birthday, a photo, perhaps the, the weight and the length of the baby. However, the Isaiah 9 birth announcement is the most unique birth announcement ever. Most unique for a couple of reasons. First, it came 700 years before Jesus was born. You know, that's unique. I think you would agree that uh, most birth announcements today are sent out late, perhaps even way late, but, but never before the baby is born. The, the second uniqueness about Isaiah 9 is that it tells us what Jesus will accomplish, what he will accomplish at the announcement of this birth before he takes on flesh. I mean, could you imagine receiving a birth announcement today stating that, that this newborn baby was going to be the tallest in their family and was going to win the Boston Marathon? and was going to graduate top of their class from Harvard and was going to, to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company that they launched. And yet, Isaiah's prophetic promise of the coming Savior tells us about Jesus' person and work over 700 years before he takes on flesh and dwells among us. And Isaiah does this by way of four names or four titles. And, and so listen, listen for this birth announcement in, in verses 6 and 7. Although I also want you to keep in mind that this passage is not merely a birth announcement. I mean, it's really so much more than that. It's really the incarnation announcement. The incarnation announcement of the eternal Son of God taking on flesh and dwelling among us. And so just like last week, I will read the whole passage of Isaiah 9 verses 1 to 7, even though I'm preaching through verses 6 and 7. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, life-giving word, Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. 
For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And so let's walk through verses 6 and 7 together. You know that we, we looked at verse 1 through the first part of verse 6 in detail last week. And so I certainly refer you back to, to that sermon if you weren't here and you're listening to those earlier verses wondering what they're about. But, but we, look, look at verse 6. Let's begin there. For to us a child is born... To us, a son is given. And we've already said this child, this coming son, this son who is given by God the Father to the world is Jesus. And we even saw how this is made unmistakably clear at early in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 4, whenever this Isaiah 9 passage is quoted at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And then we read, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And this is a prophetic promise that Jesus will rule and reign as king. The government being upon his shoulder refers to bearing the burden of kingship. And we'll come back to this later, um, but Isaiah tells us that this coming son, given to us by God, is God's long-awaited forever king in the line of David. But we're going to return to this important point later, at the end of the sermon, kind of in the summary, looking at verse 7. Now, but look now at the second half of verse 6. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so I, I had to admit this in the first service, that even whenever I'm reading the scripture passage and I come to the second half of verse 6 and I say it now, it is so hard for me just to read it. Because I've sat through Handel's Messiah so many times and I've, I've heard it so many times from our choir and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Yes, I've so many times. Yeah. And, and you also see that's why I'm only allowed to talk at the Messiah, and and I'm not I'm not invited to be to be up here, um, or or as my daughters would say, you know, Dad is special when it comes to that that kind of that kind of thing. But, but look, look at verse 6, and you see these, these titles, these names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Pastor, commentator Ralph Davis says, so that is the child's name. His character, his nature, his way with his people. And so we're going to look at these. Look at these four names that we see in the second half of verse 6. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we'll look at them in turn. So first, Jesus is our Wonderful Counselor. And so don't, don't hear that phrase, Wonderful Counselor, and think Jesus is merely a really, really, really good counselor or a really gifted therapist. Or that Jesus is, is 
always there to merely listen to our problems and, and to merely sympathize with us and help us to feel better. The, the name or title Wonderful Counselor refers to the wisdom and the insight in the truth that Jesus gives, that he speaks to his people through his word. That's what's meant by our wonderful counselor. So listen to how Pastor Derek Thomas explains this. Jesus is wonderful in counsel, magnificent in wisdom. His every instruction is wonderful. His opinions are extraordinary. His recommendations are impressive. His advice is phenomenal. He is the only one worth listening to. Okay, and where do we go to listen to him? Where do we go to listen to Jesus, our wonderful counselor, today? Where do we go to find his wonderful counsel, his magnificent wisdom, his perfect instruction? We have his word. We don't have to wonder what his wonderful counsel for our lives is. We have his word. If only we will take it up and read. Take it up and read. I mean, remember what, what Paul says about God's word in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17? All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for four things, teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the people of God, may be complete equipped for every good work. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. He's given us his word. And this is what his word does in our lives. It teaches us, reproves us, corrects us, trains us in righteousness. So think about teaching. Jesus is our wonderful counselor, and his word teaches us many things, including who God is. Who God is. I mean, as you know, it's possible to, to know the Bible without knowing God, and, and sadly, many people do. It's impossible to truly know God without knowing the Bible. I mean, the natural world tells us many things about God, about his invisible attributes and qualities, his creativity, his power, his existence. But if you really want to know God, to know what he's like, to know his heart, his character, to know his promises, to know him personally, then you must seek to know him through his word given to us in the Bible. That Jesus is our wonderful counselor, and his word teaches us many things, who God is, and his word teaches us who we are who we were made to be, his image bearers who were created to love God, our creator, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. I mean, think with me for a moment about all of the brilliant people, and the incredibly brilliant people in the world who have no idea how to answer questions like, who am I? Why am I here? Is there any meaning to my life? What is my purpose? Jesus is our wonderful counselor, and his word teaches us who we were made to be. And his word teaches us how to view our world and all of our decisions and opportunities and all of our circumstances from God's perspective. But we all, not only does he teach us, he also reproves us. See, Jesus is our wonderful counselor, and the truth of his word inevitably leads us to an awareness that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And it leads us to the awareness that, that I am not the way I'm supposed to be. That, that I'm a sinner. And when I sin, when we sin, we miss the mark 
of God's perfect standard. That we miss the mark of what God calls us, who he calls us to be, how he calls us to live. And we miss this mark with our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And whenever our thoughts, words, and actions are out of line with God's word, then God graciously uses his word to reprove us. Whenever our theological beliefs are erroneous, God graciously uses his word to reprove us, to to correct us. He uses his word to teach us, to reprove us, and for correction. Jesus is our wonderful counselor, and his word corrects us, mends us, heals us, transforms and changes us. See that, That word that's translated as correction has the root of ortho, like orthodox, orthopedic, orthodontist. Means to to make straight, to correct that which is crooked or that which is broken. A a medical term used for healing, improving, correcting a broken bone, rebuilding a ruined building. You know, picking a fallen object back up and setting it upright. Helping a person who's stumbled and fallen back onto their feet. For teaching, reproof, correction. And for training, training in righteousness. And that word translated training is related to the word used for the rearing of a child. Jesus is our wonderful counselor, and he's given us his word to teach us how to live as God's children, to teach us how to grow up and to mature as God's children, to grow up and to mature in Christ. You see, apart from God's word, we lack wisdom. We lack wisdom, but we have Jesus. He is our wonderful counselor, and he has given us his word in love for our good. Listen to how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. Jesus Christ is a wonderful counselor. He not only shines light into my darkness, he tells me where more light is to be found. He is himself the light, and when he shines his light into our lives, we come to life. So let me ask you, what if we believe that? And what if we lived it out? What if we committed ourselves to, to actually reading and learning the Word of God? What if we allowed God's Word to tell us who we are, why we are here, what the meaning and the purpose of our lives should be? What if we allowed God's Word to, to order, to reorder our priorities, even if it meant turning them upside down, which is really right side up? You see, we, we've provided... We have provided individuals and families with Advent guides. They're they're on our website. And friends, it's not too late. It's not too late to begin using them. It's It's not too late to begin using them for yourself, using them with your family, using them with your children. I promise you, you still have time to catch up. My family needs to catch up. It's not too late. To begin using them, to be get get yourself and your household and your family into God's word. We've got so many wonderful Sunday school classes in bet- at 10 a.m. between both worship services. It's not too late to pick one. It's too late today, but, but it's not too late to pick one. You ought to pick one. They're wonderful. Put yourself under the faithful teaching of God's word. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Second, Jesus is our mighty God. Look with me at all of verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So Jesus is our mighty God, and that tells us many things. 
Here's the first thing. This is really, all these are very important. Jesus is our mighty God, which reminds us he's one person with two natures. One person with two natures. We see here in verse 6 that Jesus is undoubtedly a true human. He was born as a child, a real child, a true child. And yet, we also see he's undoubtedly the mighty God. And this is the consistent testimony of the Bible, that Jesus is truly a man, but not merely a man. He's mighty God. And think about what we read in John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then later, John 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or later in John's Gospel, in chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 2, verse 9, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Or the incredible passage that opens the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3, we read, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, our wonderful counselor, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That Jesus is our mighty God. He's one person, two natures, fully God, fully man. Now think about this, okay? Why does this matter? Why does this matter? When we think about the virgin birth, I think especially during Advent at Christmas time, why does the virgin birth matter? Why is it so important that Jesus, our Savior, be fully man, fully God? Jesus had to be born of a woman to really be a man, a true man, who could really, truly die on the cross as our substitute. But if Jesus had been the biological son of Joseph, and therefore there was no virgin birth, then Jesus would have been merely a man. Merely a man and not our Savior. See, a mere man can die as a martyr, but a mere man can't die as the Messiah. That only the virgin birth preserves the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Jesus is mighty God. His conception by the Holy Spirit points to his deity. His birth from the woman points to his humanity. And because Jesus took on flesh by the unique, miraculous, creative act of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was not corrupted by the guilt of Adam's sin in the way that all of us are, and that he could be our redeemer. And listen to how the Heidelberg Catechism explains this. Question 16 asks, why must he, Christ, be, true, be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Then question 17 asks, why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. 
that only Jesus Christ, the God-man, can both pay for the sins of others and bear the burden of God's wrath. You see, fallen humanity could not produce its own Savior. God had to do it. That we had to, we had to read Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son was given. God had to give his son as a gift to the world. God had to send the Savior. And their Savior is one person, two natures, fully God, fully man. You know, as we sang earlier in this service, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hailed the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Jesus is our mighty God, one person, two natures. Also, Jesus is our mighty God, and that reminds us that he has the power to save us. He has the power to save us. He has the power to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Consider Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. This is a verse we'll get to sometime early or at some mid, midway of uh, 2022 at some point. We'll get there. And it's a, it's a wonderful verse that says a whole lot to us. And consider what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Speaking about what life was like before Jesus saved you. You were dead in trespasses and sins. No spiritual life, spiritual death. I mean, do you realize what this means? We're utterly hopeless and helpless to save ourselves. That we lack the ability, we lack the desire, we lack the power to save ourselves. We lack the ability and the desire to, to trust Christ, to love God. However, Jesus is our mighty God. He has the power to save me. He has the power to save you. He has the power to give you a new heart, a new birth, a new life, to give you resurrection power, to enable you to walk in newness of life. See, Jesus is our mighty God. He has the power to save us. He also, as mighty God, has the power to keep us. Listen to what Jesus said in John 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life. He has the power to save us. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. He has the power to keep us. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 35 to 39. Listen to what he says about this, the love of Christ, the mighty God who, who not only saves us but keeps us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is our mighty God and he has the power to save us and the power to keep us. And praise God that he does. Because apart from his power our enemies are too great. Our enemies are too great. They're not too great for Christ. They're too great for us. And that's the point that John Calvin makes. He says, with good reason does he call him strong or mighty, because our contest is with the devil, death, and sin, enemies too powerful and strong, by whom we would be immediately vanquished if the strength of Christ had not rendered us invincible. Thus, we learn from this title 
that there is in Christ abundance of protection for defending our salvation so that we desire nothing beyond him, for he is God who is pleased to show himself strong, mighty on our behalf. See, dear Christian, do you know that your Jesus is mighty God? That's the Jesus who holds you in his hand. That's the Jesus who saved you. That is the Jesus who keeps you. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. See, we lack wisdom, but Jesus is our wonderful counselor. We're weak and powerless. Jesus is our mighty God. The third name is Everlasting Father. Jesus is our Everlasting Father. Now, for me, Everlasting Father is the most confusing of these names for the coming Savior. And the potential confusion that you may have had before, like me, is that we know the Bible teaches us that God is Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And therefore, you may wonder, well, how can we say Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God the Son, will be the everlasting Father? Because God the Son's not God the Father, God the Son's not God the Holy Spirit. However, there's no contradiction here because Isaiah is not teaching us about the relationship within the Trinity. Rather, this prophetic promise of Isaiah 9 is focused on what happens when God is with us in and through Jesus Christ. Listen to how Ralph Davis explains this. When Jesus is called Everlasting Father, the Father image expresses the role of the King as he exercises care and concern on behalf of his people. This part of the child's name perfectly balances the immediately preceding one. For if mighty God speaks of his power and might to fight for and defend his people, everlasting Father speaks of the tenderness and his heavenly anxiety, his heavenly concern that he has to care for them in all their circumstances. Or as my friend David Strain puts it, Jesus is our everlasting Father. And I think this speaks a word to us about his love. A love that will not let us go. A love that can never be broken. An everlasting love. And the more we grow in our understanding of covenant theology, then the more the title Everlasting Father makes sense to us and is actually very helpful. You see, Adam was our first father. But we know that he sinned, he failed. He's not an everlasting father. Christ is the second Adam, our true covenant head, our everlasting covenant federal head who succeeded where Adam failed. And we bear his name. We bear the name of Christ. We are his offspring, as Isaiah 53 tells us. We've been baptized into his family, and in that way, he is our everlasting father. That we, we lack wisdom. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. We are weak and powerless. Jesus is our mighty God. We need the love of a new family. Jesus is our everlasting Father. And then we see that Jesus is our Prince of Peace. And so so how, how are we to understand this peace? Well, Jesus speaks about the peace he gives in John 14 when he's in the upper room with his disciples the night before the cross. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so he's comparing and contrasting the peace that Jesus gives with the peace the world gives. They're very different peace, very different types of peace. Matthew Henry says, the peace of Christ 
is such that the smiles of the world cannot give it, nor can the frowns of the world take it away. I want that peace, don't you? The peace Jesus gives really is like that. It is so qualitatively superior to the world's peace. And only Jesus can give this peace because Jesus alone deals with our core problem, our real problem, which is our sin. Our sin which has separated us, and alienated us from God. And Jesus alone lived that sinless, perfect life that we failed to live. He alone went to Calvary's cross and died that sacrificial, atoning death in our place as our substitute to pay our sin debt in full and to fully make us at peace with God, to reconcile us to God. And it's because of Jesus' work, his accomplished work on our behalf, that we are declared forgiven. We've been washed clean from our sin, clothed in Christ's righteousness, adopted into God's family, legally declared justified before our holy God. And all of this, all of these are, this is objective truth that Jesus has objectively accomplished for all of God's children through faith in him. As Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And do you see that this peace with God is only for those who have been justified by faith? And so what that means, for those of us who are in this sanctuary who are not yet Christians, it means that you don't know this peace. But you need to know it. You need to know it. Now, if that's you, I'm so glad you're here. I want you to know that. I didn't grow up going to church. I became a Christian as an adult. I would love to talk with you. I'd love to hear your story. I'd love to share my story with you. But I, I want to speak to you in love, but also but share the truth with you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then please know that you are in a perilous situation. And not temporarily perilous, but eternally perilous because of your sin. That your sin has placed you at war with God. At war with God enemy, an enemy of God, and this is not a war you want to be in. This is not a war you can win. And so turn to Christ, trust in him, humble your heart, bend your knee. Jesus is the Savior you need. Cry out to him. As Paul writes in Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as he says later in the chapter, in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, made at peace with God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. But those of us who were shaking our fists in rebellion at God, we've now, we've been forgiven, reconciled to God, made at peace with God through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so for those of us who are followers of Christ, see, this, this true, real, objective peace with God for all who believe in Christ, it ought to, it must bear real fruit in our lives. I mean, how can it not? I mean, how can knowing these things not impact the way we live? I mean, how can knowing that our sins are forgiven, that we're at peace with God, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who trust in Christ by faith, how is it possible that we don't have peace in our hearts I mean, this has to set our hearts at rest and at peace whenever we remember and we add up and we consider all that Jesus has done for us, that he saved you, 
He's adopted you into God's family. That there is already a place setting with your name on it at the great feast awaiting God's people in heaven. That this is why Paul can write in Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Or put another way, because we know, love, trust in Jesus, it's possible for us to have the peace of God which surpasses all understanding in every circumstance. I mean, there's no way I could possibly know all of the circumstances all of you are going through, but I know that this includes whatever circumstance you're going through. Jesus' peace doesn't extract us out of our troubling circumstances, but rather Jesus' peace guards our hearts and our minds in the midst of the troubling circumstances. There are circumstances, they come and go, they change, they get better, they get worse, the things wax and wane, but Jesus' peace is, is constant. It always surpasses understanding. It's able to guard our hearts and our minds. See, we lack wisdom. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. We're weak and powerless. He's our mighty God. We need, we need the love of a new family. He's our everlasting father. We are enemies at God, shaking our fists at him. We're, we're eaten up with, with anxiety and restlessness. Jesus is our prince of peace. And now there's one last thing that summarizes this. All of this has been pointing to this. Jesus is the promised Savior. He's the promised Savior. I mean, look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, this is a prophetic promise that Jesus will rule and reign, bearing the burden of kingship. And Isaiah tells us that this coming son, given to us by God, is God's forever king to establish and to uphold his kingdom forevermore. And this prophetic promise of Isaiah is only one prophetic promise in a long line of prophetic promises going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And then running throughout the Old Testament before eventually finding their fulfillment in the personal work of Christ. So consider this, this quote from Derek Thomas. He says, this remarkable passage has brought together almost everything that God had been doing since Eden. His promise made then in the garden, then repeated to Abraham, Judah, Moses, David, is summarized here. Capture the meaning of this passage, and you have a key to the Old Testament. And you see, it goes from this promise in Eden, Genesis 3.15, that God would send a Savior, an offspring of the woman, that though his heel would be bruised, he would crush the serpent's head. The Savior would be an offspring of the woman. And, the pro- and we don't know that the, 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 the Savior would be an offspring of Abraham. And then we read that, he would, that in, in Genesis 49, the promise is that he would come from the tribe of Judah. Then the promise to Moses is that God would preserve for himself a holy people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And that this offspring of the woman, offspring of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah would also be a prophet greater than Moses. And then we see that the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, this offspring of the woman, this offspring of Abraham from the tribe of Judah, this prophet greater than Moses would also be a king greater than David, David's greater son, to rule and reign on the throne of David forever and ever. And that's where we see, that's where we are in Isaiah 9, verse 7, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. This is, this is, the, same, this is the same son born of the virgin, that Juan Carlos preached to us from Isaiah 7, verse 14. 
This is the same son from Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. This connection to David. In the Bible, the New Testament makes this unmistakable. I mean, do you realize what the first verse of the first book in the New Testament says? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of David, this connection, this long string of prophetic promises. And if that's not clear enough, consider what Gabriel said to Mary in Luke 1, verses 31 to 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. See, the prophetic promise of Isaiah is only one prophetic promise in a long line of prophetic promises going back, beginning in the Garden of Eden and running throughout the Old Testament before finding their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so how is this possible? Because it seems as if, you know, the whole Old Testament, and especially Isaiah 9, is making too big of a promise. How is it possible that all of this will come about? We'll consider that very last sentence of Isaiah 9, verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. How is this possible? Because God does it. Because God makes promises, and God is faithful to keep his promises. And all of this is put into very clear focus if we have eyes to see during Advent and at Christmas. See, all of these promises, all of this hope, all comes together. Like the, the line from a little town of Bethlehem, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Or Sinclair Ferguson puts it, the hopes of all the years converge there on the first Christmas Eve. And if God has kept this, his oldest promise, going back to Genesis 3.15 in the garden, can we not also be sure that he will keep all his promises? And the answer is yes. We can be sure that God will keep all his promises. The question is, will you believe them? The question is, will you take God at his word? Will you believe that Jesus is your wonderful counselor? He is your mighty God, your everlasting father, your prince of peace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the long line of promises going back to the garden and coming forward. Thank you, Father, that to us a child is born and to us a son is given. May we think rightly about this son, about Jesus, who is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Today, this Advent, and this Christmas, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.